0: Great. yeah. So I've called this talk, uh, Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God? Problems and Promises of Miroslav Volf's Views from a Reformed Christian Perspective. And just to give you some background, uh, this falls in uh, chapter 2 of my DPhil research, uh, as I'm sort of looking at ways that Christian-Muslim relations could be construed both politically and in this case theologically uh, and sort of trying to dispatch them and offer some promising alternatives in their place. Uh, So this is a very slimmed down and refined uh, set of arguments from that second chapter and I've slimmed them down for the sake of Uh, greater clarity for a non-specialist audience, and I hope that it will be clear. If something I've said is not, please let me know. I'm going off the PowerPoint, uh, so it is largely extemporaneous, and I'm welcome to take any brief clarifications in the middle uh, and more substantial questions that we can address at the end. So, just for those of you who are not aware, uh, Miroslav Wolf is a Croatian-American theologian based at Yale University. Uh, his probably most famous work is entitled Exclusion and Embrace, uh, Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness, and Reconciliation. And he's really been at the heart of sort of questions of conflict, enmity, and reconciliation from a theological point of view since the early 90s. And so, it, in some ways, it shouldn't surprise us that uh, he turns in a 2011 book Uh, to the topic of Christian-Muslim relations with a book entitled, A Law, A Christian Response. Uh, And this book has generated, it's safe to say, a storm of controversy uh, within the Christian world. Uh, At least one member of a faculty at Wheaton College in the United States appears to have lost her tenured position there for siding with Wolf in, in the issue that we're examining today. Uh, So, this is not an easy question. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? And I'm not going to address all the extra concerns and the the people who have entered into the debates with Wolf, except tangentially. Uh, But instead, I'm going to address some problems and promises from a particular Reformed perspective. And for those of you who maybe not be familiar or who want greater clarification on what that means, uh, by the Reformed tradition, I simply mean the strain within Protestant Christianity uh, most typically associated with uh, the uh, theologian John Calvin, the Dutch Reformers, Abraham Kuyper, Erman Bavinck, uh, and later, most noted, you know, probably most recently, the Swiss uh, theologian Karl Barth. But as we'll see, uh, each of these thinkers' traces uh, their roots somewhere back to St. Augustine, uh, which is where I'm going to take my own constructive proposal's starting point moving forward. Uh, Yeah. So without any further ado, let's get into some of what Wolff brings us. Uh, So Wolff brings us a a very hot and spicy uh, presentation, as he says in his book, and he addresses two questions in Allah, a Christian response. Uh, First, do we believe in the same God? Is it the case that Muslims and Christians believe? And is it the case that Muslims and Christians worship the same God? These are distinct questions for Wolf, and he tackles each of them uh, separately in the book. Regarding belief, uh, Wolf says the first thing we need to ask is, how do we decide whether it is that Muslims and Christians believe in the same God? And the criterion that he puts forward uh, for the decision is one of sufficient similarity. Uh, What is sufficient similarity, we might ask? Well, uh, by sufficient, wolf means not absolute similarity, right? After all, God is not like a banknote. Uh, It doesn't make any sense for us to compare Christian conceptions of God, Muslims conceptions of God, as we would compare a real British pound to a counterfeit one. Why is that? Well, it's because all of our conceptions of God differ slightly from one another. Not a single person in this room, if we were to ask how we conceive of God, even if we were all within the Christian denomination, uh, would give exactly the same answers or use exactly the same concepts or metaphors. Uh, Moreover, it's clear that uh, sufficient similarity, we may ask, well, what about the Trinity? Is the Trinity at least part of the sufficient criteria for similarity? Uh, Wolf thinks it's not. Uh, For one, he points out that it's not clear that the Quran, at least as he reads it, rejects the Trinity as Christians hold to it, uh, drawing in particular on the Quranic injunction, say not three. Uh, Wolf says Christians don't say that. So maybe there's some flexibility in the hermeneutic. Second, he points to the case of the Jews, who also, like Muslims, affirm a monoperson, monotheism, at least if they they don't belong to the messianic strain. And as such, Wolf says it's not typically the case that Christians deny that Jews and Christians worship the same God. Uh, And as a further piece of evidence, he also points to the Trinitarian debates in early Christianity between Arius, Sibelius Athanasius. In that case, Wolf asserts that uh, even when they landed on different sides of the issue, uh, these various Christian sects were not accusing each other of worshipping different gods, but of having different conceptions of the same God. So with these examples in hand, Wolf concludes that to the extent that Christians and Muslims embrace the normative teachings about Christianity and Islam of, of Christianity and Islam about God they believe in a common God So that brings us now to worship uh, how do we decide whether or not Christians and Muslims worship the same God well, Wolf starts out by telling us that actually our actions more fully disclose our hearts than do our explicit beliefs. So, in some ways, Wolf actually thinks this is a more important question than the conception question. Uh, he points to uh, injunctions like from Matthew 7:20, where Jesus tells us that false prophets will be known by their fruits. Uh, likewise, in Matthew 12, Jesus states that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Uh, and Luke's uh, conception of Jesus also tells us that no tree, will, uh, no good tree bears bad fruit, no bad tree will bear good fruit, always seeming to point to how there's an intrinsic relationship between external activities that go on and internal dispositions. Uh, and he also signals that both Muslims and Christians consider it integral to their religious practice, uh, to be lovers of God and lovers of neighbor. And here he's signaling the common word document put forward in 2007, uh, which was initially, for those of you who may be unaware, uh, a Muslim initiative highlighting what they saw as commonalities uh, between Christian and Muslim doctrine, uh, and specifically about praxis. So, furthermore, when we talk about love, Wolf says when we look at it from a Christian perspective, we need to recognize what the source is. And here he takes us to 1 John 4 7, which says, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And in a gloss on this passage, Volpe tells us, If love is from God, then all genuine love is from God, in that they are born from God, in that God abides in them, in that God works through them. With God's help, therefore, Muslims do God's will. They may or may not be aware that they are doing God's will. Or they may not be able to articulate or they may only be able to ar- articulate only very inadequately who God is and what God's will is. Yet if they love, they know God even without adequately acknowledging God. They worship God without properly believing. Uh, so this Yes, ma'am? This is all from Wolf's 2011 book. Yes, and the page numbers are referencing uh, the paperback edition of Allah, A Christian Response. So, this, of course, leads Wolf to conclude that to the extent that Christians and Muslims strive to love God and their neighbors, they worship the same true God. And clearly, Wolf thinks there's room for better better action than belief and that somehow... uh, better action doesn't negate the problem, certain problematic beliefs. So, um, that's Wolf's view in a nutshell, a very very quick nutshell, and if we had more time, I would also want to signal some of his specific engagement with Luther, uh, which I don't always think is very clearly nuanced, but that's something we can get into uh, during discussion time if you're interested, uh, but just to, it's just worth saying that I think the substantial portion of these views are constructed out of uh, either a reading or a misreading of Martin Luther's theology of Islam. Uh, and first I want to address some of what I think are the biggest problems with uh, these under- this understanding as Wolf has put it out. And specifically I think there are problems with what Christians would call hamartiology, or what we understand about sin. And Uh, Then also about soteriology and ethics, what we believe about how people are saved and how, what it is that being saved as a Christian, uh, what does that mean in relation to how we live our lives and how we comport ourselves ethically day to day. So I'm going to draw some of these out. Uh, The first problem I think we need to highlight is the problem of sin and separation. Uh, For Christians, belief is not just a matter of sufficient similarity. Uh, Why do I think that? Well, I think it's because it's clear, at least from a reform perspective, that sin does not just distort our image of God, but it actually separates us from Him. Uh, We may draw specifically from Ephesians 2.12 here, uh, which is a passage that Wolf has also looked at in other cases. We'll look at that in a moment. Uh, Where it mentions that to be separated from Christ, quote, is to be alienated, and crucially without God, a theoi, in the world." Ephesians 2.12 This is something, just for the record, that actually Wolf has picked up on in other perhaps more theologically nuanced works that he's written prior to this one. Uh, This is a quote taken from his book Exclusion and Embrace, page 47. Quote, "Uh, "...from the Pauline perspective, the wall that divides is not so much the difference as enmity. Ephesians 2.14 is what he's signaling there. Hence, the solution cannot be the one. Neither the imposition of a single will nor the rule of a single law removes enmity. Hostility can only be put to death, it can be put to death only through self-giving. Peace is achieved through the blood, uh, through the cross and by the blood. And that's that comes in an extended engagement Uh, with the Ephesians 2 text, Uh, and it just points to that for for Christians, the problem of our relationship with God because of sin is not a strict matter of do my beliefs correspond in a one-to-one relationship with the beliefs that God holds about himself. Uh, There are much deeper relational aspects uh, to this problem, not just what we would call aesthetic ones. Uh, or ontological ones, of do my beliefs correspond, but there's an actual separation that goes on, uh, at least according to the Pauline text here. Um, the second problem that we need to draw is actually, what is God doing in all of this? Um, it's clear from elsewhere in Wolf's book that he rejects the thesis of a man named Feuerbach. And uh, And Feuerbach held the thesis that actually God was nothing more than our conceptions of Him. Divinity was a projection onto the screen of the divine. Uh, And so it followed that what we believed about God didn't actually tell us anything about the transcendent at all, but it actually told us a lot about ourselves and what our own particular cultural assumptions were, Uh, but God was not real in any meaningful sense beyond uh, the sense of the way that our cultural projections, hopes, and aspirations are real. Uh, Wolff rejects this view explicitly in the book, arguing that God is transcendent, right? He is more than our imminent conceptions of Him. So, given that Wolff explicitly says this in his work, it's really strange that he makes sufficient similarity the decisive epistemological criterion for answering the question of whether or not we believe in the same God. and Wolf only gives us one quote in the entire book that references this notion of God's transcendence being more than our imminent conception of Him. And it, it comes on page 73 when he says, quote, It is not our convictions about God that save us. God saves us. That's all we get. Um, so, uh, and I think some of... The people who have read Wolff's work and are pushing back on it in some edited volumes that he's done actually get this a lot better. Uh, for us, belief is not a purely imminent concept, but actually it's an aspect of faith. We might describe belief as one of the subjective or interpersonal dynamics going on in the broader theological concept of faith. As Schwobel says to us, quote, it is one of the central convictions of Christian faith that the constitution of faith is not a human work, but a work of God, the Holy Spirit. Faith is passively constituted for humans and not actively constituted by humans. So, again here, I think the point is that not only is belief more than... Uh, simply what we're doing, but actually it's something that God has to do first in us to actively constitute in us. It's an initiative taken by God on our behalf before it is something subjectively experienced by us as belief. Uh, this is another way that I think uh, Wolf needs to clarify and expand beyond the Feuerbachian model that he rejects. The third problem I think with Wolff's perspective is the problem of dualism. Uh, Wolf tells us right at the beginning of his book that, quote, this book is about God and this world, not about God and the world to come, about socially relevant knowledge of God, not about saving knowledge of God. That comes from page 13. The problem with that kind of sort of radical juxtaposition of saving knowledge and socially relevant knowledge is that Christian eschatology really doesn't permit us to think in these sort of dualistic terms. And if you're not familiar, eschatology is the word that Christians use to talk about what we think about time. Um, We live now, as Christians will tell you, the most basic orientation that we use to think about how we live and what time we're living in is the idea of the now and the not yet. Uh, Which is to say that when God and Jesus uh, came incarnate and began His ministry, He announced the Kingdom of God is here. And there's an aspect of our lives that will always forever be changed by that. Uh, We don't live the way we used to. uh, And therefore, because the kingdom of God is here now, uh, being saved, whatever that means, is not just about going to heaven someday when we die. It has to affect how we live here and now. Uh, But there's also a not yet aspect to it. Uh, Life is not yet as it will be when final redemption has occurred. And again, so there's a tension to our lives. And I think, again, this is something that Schwobel, as a, a critic of Wolf, and as a responder to his work, gets better. When he says, quote, Faith affects the whole of our personal being in the world. It grants insights to our existence as personal beings with finite and conditioned freedom. So again, showing that faith in God is not just something that you know, gets us to heaven when we die. Uh, it's something that actually affects the way we see the world right now. Uh, so any attempt, as Wolf is doing, to sort of radically separate eschatology and ethics, salvation and the social, is just not going to work. So those are the three big problems, I think, that Wolf has with his uh, problem. He, uh, we're not sure what God's action is doing in all of this. He hasn't addressed the problem of sin and the notion of separation from God. Uh, And his eschatology is radically dualistic. Uh, Social and saving are separate. If those are the problems, I think there is a more promising place to start in his work. it starts first with the throwaway line that I gave you earlier, that it is not our conceptions about God that saves us. God saves us. And that being the only line in the book that references divine action, uh, can be paired with another quote that Augustine gives us, or another starting point that Augustine takes us with in Augustine, uh, and specifically Augustine's notion of the two cities. Uh, Glossing what Augustine thought, Wolf says, "...Muslims and Christians share the basic idea underlining Augustine's City of God, one of the most important works of all time about Christians' relation to the outside world. The whole of humanity is divided into the city of this world and the city of God, One dedicated to the love of self, and the other to the love of God and neighbor. Um, The problem with this, uh, I think that this is actually a very promising starting point, and we'll get to why in just a moment. The problem is, Wolf takes that and just sort of leaves it. He acknowledges, he says that it's likely that Christians and Muslims will look at each other as mutually exclusive members of the opposite city. Christians will largely think that they are members of the city of God, and Muslims will largely think that they are members of the city of God, and the other two are not. Uh, And the other are not to each other the same. Uh, So he largely uses it to focus on the division. But... The reason I think this is a more interesting starting point is because if Wolf had looked more carefully into what Augustine thinks about the two cities, he would actually notice that the division between them is not fundamentally institutional, a church-world distinction or a Christian-non-Christian distinction, uh, at least in terms of your loyalty to certain institutions. Uh, But it's actually a personal division. It's a matter of who you love. and, therefore, and specifically Augustine says that the city of God loves God uh, to, the con- to the point of contempting the self and the world, and the city of man loves the self to the point of contempting God and uh, the world. Uh, so it's more fundamentally where our loves are oriented, not where we go on a Sunday or a Friday, if that makes sense. Uh, And moreover, because uh, the the fundamental aspect of the two cities is that in this world, they are radically intermixed and intermingled. Uh, As Augustine tells us in Book 1 of the City of God, he says, In this world, the two cities are indeed entangled and intermingled with one another, and they will remain so until the last judgment shall separate them. Why does Augustine think that? Well, it's because he knows empirically from experience that, in fact, the churches that he's governing in North Africa are full of hypocrites, right? And he also knows that many of his most hardened enemies outside the church, he's seen people have radical conversion stories. Augustine himself uh, was converted out of first Manichaeism uh, uh, and then, yep, that's right, Manichaeism uh, and into... Uh, and then to Platonism, and then to the Catholic Church. Uh, So Augustine himself is aware of just how radically people's conceptions of the good life can change over time. Uh, And so that's the crucial aspect of Augustine's two cities that Wolf doesn't focus on. The way that they are intermixed and intermingled in this world, they're separated by their loves and not primarily by their institutional loyalties, and that they're hidden until the end of time. We will not know who the hypocrites are, and who those loyal, to Christ, those loyal to God are until God himself makes it the most inward notions of our heart known. Uh, I think this gives us important reasons for, uh, to focus, or one of the most crucial aspects that this gives us, I think, this notion of the two cities, is an important notion of hope. Uh, the mixed nature of the world uh, prevents two different outlooks that we could take Uh, one of both presumption and despair. Uh, We notice this in Book One of City of God when Augustine addresses both Christian and pagan readers of his work and tells Christians he's just gotten through rebuking a whole list of pagan characteristics of Rome. But at the end of that rebuke, he says to the Christian readers, don't presume that just because I've rebuked these people that you guys are safe. You're not. we, we have to be realistic about the state of the church and that many of our own members are bigger hypocrites and that they crowd into the church on Sunday and into the theater with the pagans, you know, on the weekend. Uh, and likewise, as I mentioned, we have to grapple with the fact that even amongst our most hardened enemies, he says, are des- there are predestined some who will become our friends. Uh, so we neither presume, if, if it is intru- indeed true, that the two cities are intermixed and intermingled, Uh, We can neither presume that anyone inside the church is safe because they're there, nor despair of anyone outside of it, uh, simply because they're outside of it right now. Um, So that's the fundamental idea of Augustine that I think Wolff missed. And for the rest of our time, I want to launch into what I think is a basic, constructive proposal. And in that time I want to sort of marry this Augustinian eschatology, the notion of the two cities, intermixed and intermingled in this world, with a reformed ecclesiology. If you're not a specialist in theology, ecclesiology is just the word we use in theology to talk about the Church, what we think about the Church, and specifically what the relationship is between salvation and the Church. And I want to expand on this notion that Wolf has told us, that it's not our convictions about God that save us, but that it's God who saves us. Uh, In other words, what does Hippo have to do with Geneva, Westminster, and Amsterdam? These sort of typical centers of Reformed theology in the past. So first, I want to take us uh, back to Hippo and some of Augustine's thinking about the two cities and their relationship prior to the coming of Christ. It's interesting that in Book 18 of The City of God, Augustine openly contemplates the idea, and indeed affirms it, uh, that God, that there were members of the heavenly city outside of the visible uh, nation of Israel. Uh, and Augustine says, if you doubt this, just look at what this Christian scripture say about Job. He traces his lineage to Edom. Likewise, we could point to Melchizedek, uh, as well as Jethro, uh, who's of Midian, Moses' father-in-law. All of these people that the Old Testament seems to indicate have vibrant relationships with God, but are not part of, of the actual people of Israel, and the New Old Testament texts seem very uninterested in telling us more, other than that these relationships exist. And so what this indicates to us, at least as far as Augustine's terminology would give us, is that predestination, God's sovereign choice to save people, is actually different from election, God's specific choice to call people for specific purposes to carry out His salvific plan. Predestination is a wider concept uh, incorporating more people than the election. Election would uh, refer specifically to the nation of Israel who are, by virtue of their calling, in charge of carrying on the lineage that will eventually bring forth the Christ who will save. Uh, But there may be some outside of that explicit calling whom God also is dealing with, who are predestined for salvation, God has elected to save them, uh, but are not part of this specific calling to produce the Israelite nation. Uh, And again, this is all in Augustine's terminology of predestination. I I just want to be clear, I don't think you have to take everything on board that Augustine thinks about predestination in order to see value in this, but we'll get there in a moment. Uh, But after Christ's coming, uh, Augustine doesn't contemplate the idea that salvation can be mediated through anything other than the visible Catholic Church. Uh, we can presume this because Augustine doesn't think that unbaptized infants uh, can be saved. Uh, he, it deeply troubles him, and he's clearly perturbed by it. And so the way he sort of rationalizes it is to say that, in fact, um, you know, unbaptized infants suffer the least punishment in judgment, uh, but they, they're still punished. Uh, and that's that's as good as he could do from his vantage point. But the Reformed tradition... Uh, Uh, actually expands on this notion and takes it further, and so I want to jump ahead. Augustine, if you're not aware, is writing in the 5th century AD. Uh, He dies in uh, 435, and the Reformation happens in the 16th century, uh, and so that's where we're jumping. We're jumping through almost a thousand years of history, uh, but that's the nature of it. Uh, So, what does John Calvin do? Uh, He's largely considered to be the father of of the reformed tradition within Protestant Christianity. Uh, who lives from 1509 to 1564. Well, Calvin refutes the doctrine of infant damnation. Uh, And how does he do that? Well, he distinguishes between the ordinary means of grace and the extraordinary in order to make sure that God is, in fact, sovereign over salvation. Uh, So, and to be clear, this is what Augustine didn't do, right? He didn't think that God uh, was ever saving people outside of the visible... Uh, tangible sacraments of the church, baptism, and uh, the regeneration that occurs therein. Uh, Calvin thinks that there is difference. and Of course, from Calvin's view, baptism itself is not salvific in the way Augustine would have thought, but it's a sign and seal of salvation that comes ordinarily through hearing the word preached and receiving through faith. So what does Calvin say about this? How does he distinguish this ordinary means of salvation, hearing the word through faith? He says, "...when the apostle Paul makes hearing the beginning of faith, he is describing only the ordinary arrangement and dispensation of the Lord, which he commonly uses in calling his people, not, indeed, prescribing for him an unvarying rule, so that he may use no other way." I would not rashly affirm that infants are endowed with the same faith as we experience in ourselves. I would prefer to leave this undetermined, But I would somewhat restrain the obtuse arrogance of those who at the top of their lungs confidently deny or assert whatever they please." So here you have interest, it's fun to bring this in because a lot of people think Calvin was very arrogant uh, and very brash, and at times, of course, he might take that tone. But it's worth knowing that most of that tone is the product of his inheritors and not actually his. Uh, Most of his theology actually seeks to be very humble with respect to some of these very dogmatic issues. So this is the example of how Calvin uh, says, it may be that God is using extraordinary means that we're not aware of to cause infants to be saved by faith. Even though it's ordinarily the case that faith is generated by the preaching of the Word, I hear it, and I receive it by faith, infants clearly can't do that because they're too young to assent to things like that. So God, if He is saving infants, must be doing it through some means that we don't know about. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is still pivotal for many Reformed denominations in Protestantism around the world today, picks up on this distinction that Calvin draws between the ordinary and extraordinary means, when it says in Book 10 of its Confession, quote, "...elect infants, dying in infancy, are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how He pleases." so also are other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So not only does Westminster deal explicitly with what Calvin did with unbaptized infants, and or infants who are, in, for the Reformed tradition, unable to hear and receive the word by faith, uh, but they also... Uh, take account of another set of persons, uh, these people who are incapable of being outwardly called. So this would apply not only to people uh, who have, find mental barriers, perhaps uh, they have mental defects or, or whatnot, uh, but also this has been standardly interpreted to mean people who are either so far removed from the visible institution of the church, uh, or in such a compromised position towards it, that they're not capable of hearing ordinarily that word preached. Uh, and this is, this is evident uh, in one man, Erman Bavinck, uh, who lives in the 19th century now, he's a Dutch reformer, uh, when he says in his church dogmatics, or reform dogmatics, excuse me, it is really a reformed doctrine that although God ordinarily grants the benefits of Christ by means of word and sacraments, he is not bound to this method. And be it very rarely, he also grants salvation outside the institution of the church. So, so, again, you're picking up on this ordinary, how does God work? Well, of course, it's through word and sacrament. But is God bound to that? No, He could be working outside of that. But I want to pick up on just one thing that Babing says. Why does he add the caveat, very rarely? Right, notice that there, be it very rarely, also grants the implication. If, if we're truly talking about the difference between ordinary means of grace and extraordinary It would seem weird to talk about frequency, how rare something is, which is an ordinal property. Uh, Ordinal features, if we're talking about extraordinary means of grace, seems to me like just shouldn't be commented upon. All we can say is that this is a possibility, not when or where it occurs, why or how. All of that presumes that we know something about it. To go back to Augustine's language, this is an aspect of God's hidden justice, not his revealed justice. Um, So What's the result of this? You know, I've traced for you now just a bit of how the Reformed tradition has inherited Augustine's notion of the two cities and how that maps onto their understanding of the church and how God saves people through His church. Uh, How would we modify Wolf's quote that it is not our convictions about God that save us, but that God saves us? I think it would go something like this. It is ordinarily our convictions about God that save us. But God is not bound to His ordinary means. And it may be that he works beyond these means to save. This conviction is an object of hope that prevents both presumption and despair." And by an object of hope, presumption and despair, I think it would be very clear, I think it means it's just saying this could be something that God does. Uh, Is it possible uh, that God, for instance, uh, according to the Reformed conviction, is saving people in Islam uh, who are Muslims, who are not visibly members of his church, is it possible that his salvation reaches them? Well, then we could say it's a possible object of hope. We can neither presume that it happens and say definitely, and here's how we know it's happening. No, can't say that. But nor should we despair and say absolutely not. There's no way that God could ever do that. That's the path that hope way paves between presumption and despair. Uh, and what exactly is sort of the existential attitude that this patient endurance would offer? Promote? Well, I think it looks something like what Karl Barth says in the Church Dogmatics. And this is a rather lengthy quote, and I apologize, but I think it's worth it uh, for getting that kind of the, the, sen- the existential sense that Christians should hold on to if they want to really affirm a reformed uh, understanding of, uh, of Islam. As Christians, and therefore as those who are called, we are constrained to be absolutely open. In respect of all other men and women, we may say, without exception, exercising towards them the same openness as that in which alone, because the event of our calling can never be behind us in such a way that it is not also before us, we can see and understand ourselves as those who are called. No man or woman who is called does not also have to see and understand himself or herself as one who still has to be called and, therefore, as one who stands alongside and in solidarity with the uncalled. For all the seriousness with which we must distinguish between Christians and non-Christians, we can never think in terms of rigid separation. All that is possible is a genuinely unlimited openness of the called in relation to the uncalled, an unlimited readiness to see in the aliens of today, the brothers of tomorrow. Anything we know concerning the fact that they are not called and not Christians can finally be only a matter of more or less well-founded conjecture. And even where we think we can be most sure of the fact, the reference can only be to what they are or are not provisionally. So, that's a lengthy one, but I think it has several key features that we can draw out uh, that a Reformed commitment Uh, to a view of Islam will embody. The first is the radical openness. right? And I think this channels exactly what Augustine was getting at with his notion of the two cities being intermixed and intermingled in this world. It's not that the church is unimportant anymore. It's simply that being, uh, if I I simply presume upon my being in the church that God shines favorably upon me, I've already uh, slid into presumption. Uh, And likewise, If I simply presume that those outside the church are already gone, I'm missing the chance that may draw them into me at another time. I need to be open. I also need to be humble. Given the fact that I'm still a sinner, we'll have a solidarity in sin, uh, and therefore a solidarity in the potential to be called by God's grace. Uh, It may be, for instance, that, as Wolf says, that. that as we talk, as Christians, if we, as we talk to our Muslim neighbors, we may discover that they know more about God than we thought their doctrines would lead them to presume. And that they have better understandings of who God is in certain areas than even we do. Uh, but also, crucially, there's the aspect of necessary conjecture. And I think this is where we can say that, actually, uh, doctrines, for all that I've tried to trivialize them here, are still really important. Uh, they still necessarily direct our participation in this world, and at crucial moments they can direct us better or worse, for better or for worse. Uh, doctrines are not just something that get us to heaven when we die, uh, but something that actually can meaningfully cause us to relate better in this world. Uh, a classic place I would direct people is to book four in the Confessions, where Augustine uh, has a, a friend pass away unexpectedly, and he, re- he relates back to his readers how because he didn't have right doctrine, because he didn't understand who he was, who his friend was, in relation to God, knowing who God was, it caused him to put an unbearable weight of burden on that friend, to expect too much from the friend, and therefore to be radically disoriented and destroyed when that friend passed away unexpectedly. Uh, that's right, so yeah. That, that's the final conclusion. But at the same time, we should be radically ready to think that people may know and love better than we think that their doctrines teach because the two cities are intermingled uh, and intermixed in this world. So that's where I want to close, I think. I think I've made my point relatively clear and I just want to say thank you for listening and we'll open it up to conversation. Shukran. Great. Yeah. Great. So we've got uh, plenty of time